The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. If you would, open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 63. We only have three more chapters left uh, in this book that we have been walking through. Uh, not entirely verse by verse, but definitely uh, chapter by chapter. Isaiah chapter 63 to refresh your memories, uh, many of you who have been with us every week, as most of you have been, uh, ought to be well acquainted with the time frame of the book of Isaiah. He is writing uh, just before the Babylonian captivity. He is writing to a group of people in the first portion of the book who are in Judah, the southern kingdom, who has for a, a number of generations now turned away from God. Idolatry has entered the land. Uh, injustice rules, the, the powerful are uh, taking great advantage, mistreating the weak, uh, the poor are being neglected, uh, immoralities are rampant, and the people of God have begun to look just like all the pagan nations surrounding the promised land. Uh, God has brought word through Isaiah, judgment shall come. Uh, the Babylonian captivity will occur. God is going to allow the Babylonians to come in and lay Jerusalem flat, destroy the temple, burn Jerusalem to the ground. Many um, Israelites die in this battle, in this besiege of, of Jerusalem, of Judah, and those that are alive and remain, uh, all but a small remnant, are taken back uh, into Babylon where they become slaves and servants. And Isaiah's prophecy to them is, don't think that's come upon you because God has failed, because God was distant and, and confused and unaware of the power of Babylon as if the gods of Babylon were greater. Uh, Isaiah's message has been, no, God is bringing this upon you uh, because of your sin, to open your eyes up to your sin, to draw you back unto himself, to lead you to repentance. And so they were to receive this message from Isaiah as a warning of impending judgment, which they rejected. As God had promised, judgment came. And the latter portion of the book of Isaiah, the latter half, I believe, is written prophetically to the captives in Babylon. Isaiah has them in mind. God has them in mind. Even as, as he gives Isaiah these words to, to prophesy about, to speak to, the, the audience in mind is that group of, of Israelites who were in a foreign land, uh, whose homeland has been laid waste. And to realize their homeland was the promised land, the land that God had given to them, the land that they think back of their ancestry. Uh, God performed so many mighty miracles to bring them into that God had defended for so many generations, all now taken away, all laid waste. And they now are in a foreign land in Babylon. And those ruling over them speaking a different language, they have no hope of deliverance. And yet this prophecy from Isaiah was there for them to read, even directed to them to remind them the reasonings why they are there, and also a promise of restoration, uh, that God would not leave them nor forsake them, even in the midst of this judgment He was outpouring upon them. It ultimately is for their goodness that there will be a renewal, there will be a restoration, there will be a servant of the Lord who will come, who will be for Israel what Israel failed to be. That, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. And so we have seen words of judgment mixed with words of promise over and over and over again. 
Last week, if you were with us, chapter 62, I want to recall uh, to your attention verse 7, where verses 1 through 6 were a a reiteration of the promise of a renewal of, of Zion, of the city of God that will come to be, that God will bring about. And go back to verse 6. God says to them, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, that they shall never hold their peace day or night. Those who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent and give him no rest until he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The, the, The exhortation that was given there is that God has called out these watchmen, even the prophets of the Old Testament, who will declare the promises of God. Uh, to the people of God, and then he commands them, don't give God rest. Lift up your cries to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Pray without ceasing. Don't give God rest as you lift up these prayers of His promises to Him until He fulfills it, until He establishes Zion as this great city of God. It was a call to prayer, a call to be faithful watchmen as we uh, even applied it to us last week to be faithful watchmen, uplifting uh, to God the injustices that we see, praying even the promises of God in regards to what we see, and then also making proclamation to the people of the deliverance of God that is coming there at verse 10 and verse 11, that salvation from our Lord is sure, and it will happen. It has happened even through Christ our Lord and Savior. And so the context of chapter 62 is dealing with being a faithful watchman and turning in prayer to the Lord. And it's strange that chapter 63, in a way it's strange, makes the turn that it does to go back to um, really a great proclamation, a great vision rather that Isaiah receives of a coming judgment, not the Babylonian captivity where God's people are judged in order to lead them to repentance, But chapter 63, as we're about to read and about to see, is a vision Isaiah receives of a great final judgment. Not where God's people are judged, but where the enemies of God's people are judged. And then after about verse 6, it's Isaiah's response that we'll see in verses 7 through the remainder of the chapter to this great vision of judgment that he received. I want us to read just the the vision of judgment, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll, as we walk through the message this evening, read the remainder of the verses also. Uh, But just for sake of time, let's read verses 1 through 6. Chapter 63 of the book of Isaiah. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I, who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance, is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger. 
made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. What in the world is this vision of this great final judgment that God's bringing upon the wicked, finding itself placed here in chapter 63, as it is right after a proclamation of be good watchmen and uplift your prayers to the Lord until He fulfills His promises. There are some who look to this and make even of most of the book of Isaiah that it's nothing but a random compilation of prophetic Proverbs and scriptures that that were compiled together even after the Babylonian captivity, which I say absolutely not. We, We know even by the words of Christ, Isaiah is the one who wrote this book, and I believe there's great intent and purpose, even in this passage, being located where it is. We say, as you read the context, even as chapter 64 continues with a prayer, why does God interject this promise of divine judgment that is to come there at the end of the wicked of the enemies of God, why does God place it here where He places it? And as you think about the context, of the, the historical context of even these words Isaiah is writing, to think of a people who were God's people, captives in Babylon, having no real hope because of their circumstance. They were defeated. They were enduring great affliction. They were slaves in a foreign land. And you can imagine even the words of Isaiah that are given um, from God to Isaiah in chapter 62 of of lifting up prayers before God. It's sometimes hard to pray when you're hopeless, isn't it? It's sometimes hard to pray when the sorrows of your life are are, are the pangs of sorrow even are so strong in your heart and in your life. there, There needs to be some clarification. There needs to be something that draws their attention away from the sufferings of their current situation to something in the future that gives hope. And it's, it's strange in one sense, but I hope by the end of the night you understand the purpose of God in it, that there is hope for the people of God and the reality and in the truth of God's coming judgment upon the wicked. That, that God one day will vindicate His people and God one day will bring justice to this land and will bring His righteous judgment upon the wicked of this land, of this earth. And we, we can understand it in a great way just by thinking of the tragedies of this week with that school shooting and to think of one who may come who may truly establish justice and do away with true wickedness and even the wicked that will be judged and the, the ones who have turned to God be made fully righteous in, in Christ and true through righteousness existing where there are no shootings like this. Uh, what can solve this problem? Only God's return is going to return is going to solve this this problem of human sin and wickedness and depravity. The the expectation of judgment that is to come was actually meant to be a source of hope for the people of Israel that one day Babylon would be judged. One day all the enemies of God, all the enemies of the people of God would be dealt with accordingly, according to their works. It gave them a a reason to pray, to seek the Lord. It gave them a reason to persevere even in the midst of their affliction and in the midst of their sorrow. It gave them a reason even to rejoice in the midst of the sufferings that they were enduring. And it's in that that we really find the application for us 
Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Anytime you read your Old Testament, you should think about Romans 15 and verse 4. Paul wrote and he said, For whatever things were written beforehand were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. That we through the patience and comfort, the perseverance and the comfort of the Scriptures might be given hope. That we too even live long enough on this earth, live long enough, especially in our culture of the day, and it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get defeated at what seemingly is the triumph of wickedness and wicked people all around us. And so many people can get depressed. So many believers can get their eyes off of what is to come as they focus on what is now and get in a place that is not well, that is not good. Get in a place that's hopeless. What I want us to see this evening, that it's by, it is by turning to the truths even that are laid out in this chapter that we can, we can have a faith that perseveres. That we can have a faith that keeps the faith. A faith that hopes not in today and what this wicked life is, but that hopes in that final day of God's justice. And that final day even of God's redemption that's brought to full fruition. And in that day of restoration and that new heaven and that new earth that is to come. There are some things that you must know about God. That I would say you must come to a strong grasp of before you enter those great sorrows of life. Or you'll never persevere as God wants you to. It's hard when the sufferings come. And the sorrows of life are, are, are so great. It's hard to examine God's Word and, and come to see the truth we're going to look at tonight in a way that gives a person hope. It's a lot easier, a whole lot easier, if when things aren't all that bad, maybe, I mean, nobody in here is living the greatest life. I get that. We're all living lives of some suffering, some affliction. But hear me, it's a lot easier when things are not, when the pangs of suffering aren't loudest to look to God's Word and say, there are some truths about God that I can know are true, no matter my situation. And you learn these truths, and you, you ingrain these truths into your faith, and your faith rests in these, that when the sufferings of, of life come, these truths are what, what gird you, what support you through the sufferings of life to help you keep a faith, to keep a joy, to keep uh, an endurance for God in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those seasons of suffering. If you don't have the foundation that we're going to talk about tonight, and great sufferings and trials come, so many that don't know these truths about God that we're going to look to, they easily waver and they easily falter and they easily base their opinion of, of God upon what's going on in their life. And if we base our opinion of God upon the things that we see going on around us in this broken, fallen world, it's very easy to think, goodness, God doesn't care about us. Goodness, God is far off and distant. God is weak. God is uh, just not compassionate. God, uh, God's even you know, malevolent to some degree. He, he doesn't really want the good of humanity. Why would He allow such a thing to happen? What's He doing when this occurs or when that occurs? Why did He let cancer come? Why did He... All the bitter complaints that so many bring against God, they only do so because they've never... They've never really examined who He is in light of His Word. They've never examined who He is in light of His works, in light of the revelation He's brought through His Word that records His acts with His people in time past. As we're 
about to dive into. And I say all of that in introduction to say, in the midst of your trials, there are some things you must know. There's some truths that you must know and be sure of about God. And and I want to show you tonight, they're defined here for the people of God. Notice first in verses 1 through 6. Uh, 1 through 6, in the midst of your trial, you must know that God wins in the end. Remember that the affliction that you're going through, the trial, the suffering that you're walking through in the here and now, isn't the end. That these are the temporary afflictions of this broken life, of this broken fallen world that we endure, that, that we must through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God, that God even warns of us, this life isn't the promise of restoration that is to come. This life is fallen. This life is broken. This life is sinful. But God is at work even in the brokenness of this life to work for what is to come, that there is an end that is coming. There actually is a judgment that is coming. And our world today doesn't like to think about, and our churches even today at large in America especially, don't like to talk about that, that God, who is a God of great love for all who repent, for all who turn to Him to find grace, He, he lavishly gives that grace and forgiveness to all who truly repent and turn. But for those who don't, for those who are hard-hearted, for those who endure in wickedness, not in repentance and seeking the Lord, but, but, but hate God and hate the people of God and slander the church of God, God will one day bring great judgment. And that great judgment, even as a hope to the church and to us today, as we endure a greater persecution, even in our country, even in our land, and the, the slander that can go out against the church and against God and against the Christian, uh, someday God will vindicate His name. And someday God will vindicate the name of His people. He will bring justice and He will bring vengeance upon the wicked. And so that is what verses 1 through 6 give this powerful picture of. Verse 1, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Edom in the Scripture... Uh, Literally, Edom is the land of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, from whom the nation of Israel would come. Edom, the one who sold his birthright. The Edomites were the enemies even of of the Israelites. As the Israelites entered the promised land, they deceived the Israelites. They fought the Israelites. They did all they could do uh, to defeat the Israelites. They never assisted as they should have and recognized that the God of Jacob, the God of originally even Esau, their, their father, is the one true living God. They come to be a type. Everywhere we see them, especially in the prophets, the, a type, a picture of the world that is in opposition to God and God's people. And so as Isaiah is uh, using the term here, that this is not representing literally the, the Edomites, the land of Edom. This is a figurative expression representing the people who are against God, the ones who are in opposition to God, the ones who are in opposition to God's people. Basra is the capital city of Edom, the, the epicenter of the, the land of Edom. And so this is one who comes from Edom, one who is just, as we're about to read, fought this great battle in Edom, and he comes in victory, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. 
A picture of glory and might and splendor and strength. The, the stature of his greatness, of his of the greatness of his strength is the word that, that we're traveling. What it can also mean, the, the stature of this person coming, the, the glorious nature even of his apparel, of his appear appearance. And he, he speaks to Isaiah. Notice the end of verse one is in quotation marks. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. The one whom Isaiah saw was one of might and splendor and glory and strength. And the first words he utters is, I speak in righteousness, and I am the one, and I am only the one, we'll see, who is mighty to save, mighty to deliver. And Isaiah asks of him, verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? So a winepress in that day and age, imagine a... Uh, an area with grapes all on the ground and somebody gets in it and they, they squish it with their feet. I think there's a commercial for grape juice or something like that, isn't there? Where they're, they're treading the wine press, so to speak, of what an ancient wine press would be. And their, their garments would get stained with the, the juices of those, those grapes. And so that's the imagery here. Your garments are like one who treads in the wine press. And this person, this one, speaks, verse 3, quotation marks, I have trodden... The winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. And we see it's not grape juice that soaked his garments. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. The wine press is used over and over again in God's Word as a, an imagery uh, of, of God's judgment being poured out. That just as those grapes would be squashed under the pressure of one who is trotting over them, that the wrath of God will be poured out upon the wicked, upon sinners, and it will, it will devour them. It will, um, it will squash them. And the imagery here is, is brutal. That, that the robe is soaked not in grape juice, but it's soaked in the blood of those who have been judged of God. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. This isn't a verse that we write on Christmas cards. It's not a verse that you're going to see on a you know Easter card that will be sent out. The day of vengeance is in my heart. As much as God is a God of love and grace and mercy, He is a God who is righteous, a God who is holy, a God who is just, and He is a God who will judge the wicked. He will judge the sinner who is unrepentant. He will judge the enemy of His people. The day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come, that, that through the judgment that He's bringing upon the, the wicked, He is establishing the year of the redeemed. That This is the, the means by which God will bring renewal and restoration and even the, the, the establishing of Zion that has been promised. This extended period of time follows for the redeemed the day, the short period of time of vengeance that's outpoured upon the wicked. And he looked, this person says, I looked and there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold, therefore mine own arm brought salvation for me. That this person brought judgment in and of himself. 
But there was no other one worthy. No other one who could. Revelation chapter 5. Open the scroll. No one could open the wrath of God that was to be poured out upon sinners. Except this one. No one was there. He brought salvation by his own strength. And in my own fury, it sustained me. He says, I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. That as much as God is a God of love and grace and mercy, He is a God of justice and righteousness and holiness, and He does lavishly and joyfully forgive the repentant sinner, but He will judge the wicked. He he will judge the wicked of this earth. And there will be no repentance for them in that judgment. There will be no no overlooking of their sin. There will be great judgment that God pours out upon them. Who is this who comes? We know who this is. We know as the other promises of of judgment even have pointed us to, of of God's wrath that is to come. It's the suffering servant of the Lord. It is the, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. Who is this servant of the Lord? It is Jesus Christ Himself. Revelation points us to this. Flip to Revelation chapter 19. John makes a, a very strong allusion to this imagery in Isaiah 63. In Revelation chapter 19, where John has received this vision of the end judgment that is to come upon the earth, Christ returning, not as the suffering servant as He was in this first coming, but as the ruling King of kings and Lord of lords, as the one who will renew and restore His people, as the one who will judge the wicked. In verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19, Now I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him, on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written which no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, what? Dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John writes in his Gospel. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. I've never really noticed this before, but Jesus' blood is soaked in, or Jesus' robe is soaked in blood. And those that were with him, the saints, not, not, not dipped in blood, but theirs is white by the righteousness of Christ. But him, and he and he alone, he, he is the one who can rightly judge. He is the one who will bring justice. He is the one who will tread the winepress of the wrath of God against sinners. His is soaked in blood. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is not the common of Jesus. So many people can ignore, scoff at, and mock 
a man who dies upon a cross. In this day, when that second coming occurs, there will be none laughing. There will be no one mocking and scoffing. No, it will be a day that Jesus comes not to give His life a ransom for our sins. It will be a day that Jesus comes to, to rain forth the wrath of God upon sinners and upon wickedness and upon the broken, corrupt world that is. I hope you understand that about Christ. We who repent and turn, you even tonight who may have never done that, but, but maybe tonight you're, you're getting a little fear of the wrath and fury of God against sinners. If you only repent and turn, he, he graciously forgives. He delights in forgiveness. But for those who remain hard-hearted, for those who continue in wickedness, for those who continue in opposition and persecution against His people... There is coming a day of recompense. There is coming a day of vengeance. There is coming a day that Christ will judge His enemies. It will not be a day of mockery. It will be a day of torment for those who do not know Him. The application for you and I in light of that in the midst of our trial, we must set our gaze upon Christ. That's what the picture is here. Who is He who comes? Think of Jesus who in that day, they were looking forward to the coming Messiah, the work He would accomplish to restore and renew God's people. They were to focus on that even in the midst of their season of sorrow, their season of difficulty, their season of torment. It was the focusing upon what is to come that was to give them hope to endure, hope to persevere in the midst of their trial. Hebrews 12, 1-3 speaks of the same truth for us. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares, ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And what are we to be doing? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. But in the midst of your season of sorrow, in the midst of your suffering, where you can look at your circumstances and you can think God is not in control and you can think God is distant and far away, you must, you must know this truth. This isn't the end. God is still at work in the season and there is coming a day where God will make all things right, where God, where God will judge the wicked, and we're to get our eyes off of the here and now, and we're to get our eyes off of the problem and the greatness of our suffering, and we're to get our eyes on Christ. We're to focus upon Him, to set our gaze upon Him, that we may have hope to endure the sorrow, and endure the trial, endure the persecution, endure the affliction. You've got to know this truth. Before that season of sorrow comes, notice secondly verses 7 through 14, and we'll move more quickly through these next two. Realize also, know this second truth, that God has never failed His people. Verse 7, Isaiah now in response to seeing this great vision of judgment that is to come, he, he reflects backwards. He says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us. 
and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which He has bestowed on them according to His mercies, according to the multitude of His loving kindness. In light of this great judgment that was coming upon the enemies of Israel, Isaiah looks back at the faithfulness of God in time past. And he looks back at all the grace and mercy that God had shown to His people. Verse 8, For He said, Surely they are My people, children who will not lie. So He became their Savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted. He, he walked through their afflictions with them. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity, He, has, he redeemed them. And He bore them and carried them all the days of old. They rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit, so He turned Himself against them as an enemy, and He fought against them. Then He remembered the days of old, Moses and His people, saying, Where is He who brought them up out of the sea? Where is the shepherd of His flock? Where is He who put His Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with His glorious arm, dividing the waters before them to make for Himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble? The beast goes down to the valley, and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Isaiah reflected back at the past, at the faithfulness of God, the grace and mercy God had shown to his people, and it gave him an assurance that in the present, God's faithfulness would remain. That God never failed his people then, therefore he was not failing his people now. What a great for us to remember in the midst of our sorrow and affliction. To think back. Think back at the faithfulness of God to His people. We've got it on every page of Scripture where it seems as if from a human perspective God was distant and far away or maybe even God was failing. But all the while, God is at work. Was He not? The appointed time sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, to redeem us from the law. Through it all, God never left, never forsook, never failed His people. He intervened in great ways at times. He pulled and withdrew Himself in other seasons of Israel's life. But all is under His divine orchestration of this plan of redemption for any and all who come to Him. And and guess what? He, He doesn't fail. He accomplishes it. Jesus comes and Jesus dies upon a cross and Jesus is raised again. The the means of our salvation and redemption has been accomplished. God has never failed His people over and over and over again. He's proven His faithfulness. And so when your season of doubt comes, when a season of difficulty and sorrow and grief and affliction or persecution comes, This is a truth that you have to remember and recall that hopefully you've ingrained into your heart and to your soul that you can say, I know it seems as if God is failing me, but God has never failed His people, and therefore God will not fail me now, as I am His child. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? We have a greater revelation of God's faithfulness than Isaiah had. Isaiah foresaw it prophetically, a cloudy vision of what was to come. 
scriptures in the New Testament even tell us that the prophets searched and inquired even of their own writings what was to come regarding the Christ because they couldn't understand how is he going to be one who bears the iniquity of his people and how is he also going to be one who establishes justice and rules with a rod of iron and brings the wrath of God against the enemies of God. And I couldn't see the first and second coming. We now are in the in-between the first and second coming. We have the greatest revelation of God's grace and mercy and love and faithfulness revealed through the person and work of Christ in His first coming. Think about it. If God would give His own Son to redeem you and save you, is He going to fail you now in the midst of your season of affliction? He's not. Paul's saying in Romans chapter 9, How shall He who gave His own Son for you not freely give you all things? To realize even in your season of sorrow, God God is not failing you. God is at work through your sorrow to work an eternal good and an eternal glory, just as He did through the sufferings of Christ to bring about the redemption of, of of all who come to Him. God is at work in your suffering in a way that you can't see and in a way that you may not even know until you get there. But you'll look back and you'll see it, I promise. God has never failed His people. Therefore, we can take courage in the present. God will still never fail His people. And then in the last four verses, verses 15 through 19, one more truth I want you to take home. I want you to cling to no matter what comes. Realize God also will never forsake His people. Verse 15, Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength? Isaiah is praying here. The yearning of your heart and your mercies towards me, are they restrained? Have you ever felt that way before? God, where where is your love? Where is your sovereignty in my life in directing the things going on right now? Is the yearning of your heart and mercies towards me restrained? Where are they? I don't see them clearly as I, I, I think I should. And Isaiah then responds, Doubtless, you are our Father. Doubtless. God, you're our Father, our Father who art in heaven. We as your people are your children. Though Abraham was ignorant of us in Israel, as Jacob does not acknowledge us, they didn't realize they would be there someday. He says, O Lord, You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from everlasting is Your name. It's good in the midst of your sorrow and suffering just to remember who God is to you and who you are by the grace of God to Him. That He is your Father. And just as any earthly father wants the best for his child, so much more so the perfectly divine Father is working the best for His children. And though we in our infant understanding of things don't know and understand the reasonings why so many times in our life, we by faith must believe God's our Father. He is our Redeemer from everlasting. That is His name. That's who He is. That's His name. We shouldn't doubt Him. We shouldn't get so filled with fear and anxiety and Depressed, but we should keep a hope. We, we should endure. We should persevere. We should ha- even have a joy in Him in the midst of our sorrow because He is our Father 
He is our Redeemer from everlasting. Isaiah inquires, verses 17 through 19, it's really a confession in this inquiry of why God has let His people get as far as they have gotten. Oh Lord, why have You made us stray from Your ways and hardened our hearts from Your fear? He says, return for Your servant's sake. The tribes of Your inheritance, Your holy people, have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down Your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom You've never ruled. Those who were never called by Your name. It's a confession of their waywardness, of their sinfulness. But He's acknowledging even in that season of their waywardness, God doesn't forsake His people. He's at work even in the discipline and judgment to lead them to a place of renewal. He's at work even through the servant of the Lord who is to come to redeem them. Hebrews 13 and 5 and verse 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If only we would grasp that and know this truth about God before suffering comes and remember it and cling to it when suffering comes. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we now, therefore, may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, one more passage and we'll close. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1-7. through seven. Paul writing and elaborating on our sonship and being the children of, of God. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is, un, uh, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, but we, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we, who were children of the world, who were children of bondage, slaves under the law, is the context here, and kind of jumping into it, but this latter couple of verses, verses 5-7, through seven, is what I really want you to get and take home with you. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, the suffering servant who's promised in Isaiah, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father! Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. To remember in the midst of your suffering, I'm God's child. He's my Heavenly Father. Just as much as I want to do what's best for my kids, Hudson and Trent and Ainsley. I, a fallen person who is selfish and sinful, uh, God is not selfish nor sinful. He is perfect in all that He is. He is your Heavenly Father. You are His child that He has redeemed and adopted. You're a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trial, you must understand God has not forsaken you. God has not failed you. The end has not come yet. He's at work. And it causes us to hope. It causes us to endure. It causes us to keep on keeping on. Because we know someday, someday, 
Christ is coming back. Someday there's a new heaven and a new earth. Someday Zion will be restored. Heavenly Father, I come to You and pray that You would give hope and encouragement where it's needed and to whom it's needed in this world. The truth is we all need some hope and encouragement as we look at this world around us, as we look at the sorrow and wickedness of it all, to know someday, God, You will make all things right. Someday You will judge the wicked. It gives us a reason to not focus on the here and now, but to set our eyes on You, set our eyes on what is to come, and let that be our source of strength, our source of hope, our source of joy, even in the midst of this fallen, broken life and in this fallen, broken world that we live in. And so, Lord, I pray especially for any in here who have come tonight with a sorrowful heart, a heavy heart pray that they would even now in this song that we close with, just turn it over to You. Turn their sorrow, turn their burden over to You and leave here clinging to these great truths that You are God and You're at work. That the end isn't here yet. And the end will come and You will win in the end. And that You have never failed and You will not fail them. And that You have never forsaken Your people and therefore You haven't forsaken them in the midst of their sorrow, in the midst of their trial. May that renew their heart and soul. May they leave here encouraged and in you this evening. I pray all of this in Jesus' precious name.